I want to begin with a question today that someone asked me just a few weeks ago. As we get ready for VBS, as we continue this sermon series in prayer, as we connect that to evangelism today, evangelism declaring the arrival of Christ through the cross and resurrection. I want to ask you this question, what if the last five people you prayed for to come to faith in Christ, what if they got saved today, the next day or so, maybe at VBS? What if the last five people that you prayed specifically for by name People in your life, family, coworkers, classmates, neighbors. What if those five people came to faith in Christ? What if God saved them and did what you're asking for? I have to admit, I was actually asked, what if the last 10 people I prayed for came to faith in Christ? And I started counting in my head, and I couldn't get to 10, just to be honest with you. Now, of course, we pray generic prayers that we want to see people uh, through our outreach efforts, VBS we've been praying for, and our BFG, there's names that come up, but specifically in my own life, people that I am pleading with God to save. And I'm sure eventually I could come up with 10, but in that moment, as I just started listing them in my head, and I wonder if you can today. Are there five people in your life that you are pleading with God to save? That the Spirit of God would change their heart and the gospel would make sense to them and Jesus would be their Lord and Savior and King. And through the power of the Word of God and the gospel, they would be saved and their lives would be supernaturally transformed. Well, Who are they and what would that look like? How would your family change? How would your work life change? How would your friendships change if those people came to faith in Christ? Who are they and what difference would it make if they really believed the gospel? When we get to Colossians chapter 4, Paul is ending this glorious letter on the supremacy of Christ. And he calls us to pray specifically for the preaching of the gospel, for evangelism. And I I want to challenge you today as we continue this sermon series in prayer. Prayer must culminate at times, not just with asking God to do what he's promised to do, but remembering he has promised to actually save people in your life with the gospel when they hear it. And I wonder so often is if we're not seeing people in our life come to faith in Christ because we're, we're not sharing the gospel, but also are we actually praying for that to happen? Are we just hoping? Is it just some sort of wish in our life? I wish they would become Christians. I wish they would come to church. I wish their life would be changed. Or are we on our hands and knees pleading for God to save them? Paul challenges us here to pray and to pray for an open door for the gospel, that the gospel would move forward. And we must pray for that in our own lives. Notice verse 2 of chapter 4. 
Paul is ending this letter. He's given this glorious theology of the supremacy of Christ and how it changes our hearts and how it changes our lives. And as he moves to the end of the letter in verse 2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now that word, look at the word steadfastly. It means to devote yourself to something. And yet here Paul uses this word steadfast or devotion. It's a compound word and he wants to intensify the word. And actually we could say be persistent in your devotion to prayer. Be diligent in your devotion to prayer, which we see in our English translations continue. It means don't stop in your devotion to prayer. The imagery is of grabbing something and not letting go of it, holding on to it, remaining in something or with something, unrelenting over the calls for something. Literally, Paul here calls us to grab the ear of God and not let go of it in prayer. What are the things in your life that you are unrelenting in when it comes to prayer? What are the things in your life that you are so desperate for? It is as if you have the ear of God and you are not going to let go of it until you see an answer. Are there things in your life that call such steadfastness, continual devotion in your life, and should it not be the salvation of others? Family and friends who need to come to faith in Christ that you are so desperate for. But notice he continues, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he says he wants to clarify being watchful in it. Now, this means to not fall asleep. It means to be awake in prayer. It means to be on guard in prayer, alert in prayer, like a soldier who doesn't go to sleep at night, like a soldier who is on the night watch because he knows the enemy will attack. In prayer, you are to be awake. In prayer, you are to be alert and you are to be on guard. But what are we to be on guard for? What are we to be in prayer like a soldier on the battlefield for? Why would he describe it that way? Well, the very essence of prayer is to declare, I'm helpless. I can't. I am weak and I am helpless. So much of my prayer life, we've talked about in BFG, is just saying, God help. Situations arise There's anxiety, there's worry, there's desperation. And so often I'm just walking around saying, oh God, please help. Help. And there's the acknowledgement that there is something in front of me that I have no control over. There's a situation that I don't know how this is going to work out and I need God. And so you pray, God, help. But what is the opposite of such a heart? Well, pride declares to us, you don't need any help. You can do it on your own. And what so often creeps into our heart is the sin of pride. 
When things are before us and we say, I can figure this out. I've got this. I don't need any help. If I can just focus and worry and be anxious, I can somehow grab control of this and figure it out. And so lack of prayer is pride. Lack of prayer is self-dependence. Moving away from God saying, I got this. And Paul says, be on guard for that. Stay awake. Wake up. Don't fall asleep in life as if you think you can control things, as if you think you can handle things on your own. Like a soldier who is on guard at night because the enemy may attack, pride is creeping up in your heart to declare to you, you can figure it out and you can't live that way or you'll die. The enemy will attack and destroy you. So we are to be on guard in prayer against pride. Prayer is the act in our life that kills pride before it kills us. If you begin to think, I can live without God. I can figure this out. And the more you cultivate that in your life, eventually you will declare, I will live without God. Do you have a target on your back today? Has Satan circled you out because you're living in pride? How would you know you're not praying? Prayer declares a life of dependency on God, that he is sovereign and he is good and he is in control. So how much are you praying? The enemy is at your door. Are you awake? Are you alert in prayer? But notice he adds this, with thanksgiving with gratitude, this act of giving thanks to God, this act of understanding that it is a privilege to be before God. In prayer, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. You have been bought as a son, daughter, a child of God, and you have the opportunity to bow your head before him as father. And so what should, what should, Flow from your heart in your prayers is thanksgiving. I can't believe I get to bow my head to God as Father. And so just the act of prayer should cultivate thanksgiving, gratitude in your heart. And we've talked about throughout this series that prayer, the definition of prayer is asking God to do what he said he would do. Asking God to do what he has promised to do. And Paul here with thanksgiving says before you do that, you should reflect on all he has done. Your prayer request should not just be a list, or your prayer life should not just include a list of requests of all you're going to ask him to do. You should actually also be writing out all that God has done in your life. The fact that you get to pray in the gospel as a son. But then also, we've talked about how Prayer should be guided by the Word of God. And the story of the Bible is a story of God's faithfulness over and over and over again to His people. So if I'm in the Word of God, my heart is going to overflow with all of God's promises that are being fulfilled before my very eyes in Christ. And so that is going to bubble up in thanksgiving. Look at this glorious plan 
that I'm a part of. Look at all of the ways in which you have redeemed and restored and been good to your people and how you've been good to us in Jesus and how you will be good to us in Jesus forever and ever. And your heart should overflow with thanksgiving as you bow your head in prayer. And this tunes our heart because we're going to present our requests before God in prayer. And maybe those requests aren't answered the way that we want them to be. But if our heart is overflowing in thanksgiving, our hearts are already in tune with, you know, I don't deserve him to do what what I'm asking him to do because he's already done so much that I didn't deserve. And so it tunes our heart, it aligns our heart with his will, thanksgiving does. I can't live without God, so I pray. I also can't take God for granted, so I thank him in prayer. And just like prayer kills pride, prayer is to kill ingratitude in our hearts. The sin of forgetting all that God has done for you. The sin of not remembering His goodness. The cross, resurrection, all that the Bible promises for us. When we begin to live that way, forgetting all that God has done, we begin, to, we begin to walk around thinking, I don't deserve this, whatever situation I'm in. I actually deserve more than what I have in life. And, and prayer through thanksgiving is to align our hearts. No, that's not true. You deserve hell. You deserve God's judgment forever. And so I offer thanksgiving Instead of walking around murmuring to myself apart from God, instead of cultivating a heart that doesn't trust God, in prayer, I'm saying, why would I never, why why would I ever not trust God in prayer? We give thanksgiving. And so, are you in the danger zone when it comes to pride and ingratitude? Well, you know if you're not praying. And you know if you're not spending time thanking God for all of his faithfulness in your life, you are in danger. And that's why Paul says, wake up, hold on to God's ear no matter what. Continue to live a life of helplessness and gratitude before God in prayer. And then he gives a specific prayer request as the text continues. Notice, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. So as you are in prayer, as you are in worship, declaring your dependency and thanksgiving on God, as you are doing that, as you are asking God to do what he has promised to do, Paul says, pray for us. And he's talking about his ministry team, his mission team. And here, Paul is specifically in prison. And he says, pray for me. What are we to pray for? What is the church in Colossae to pray for Paul? He says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That God would give us an opportunity to announce the word here for word is message It means to declare something, to uh, announce something. And that's why he says to declare, announce the mystery of Christ. Now, Paul uses the word mystery. It's not something that that is mysteriously unknown. He uses the word mystery to describe God's plan in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And there was a time where God's plan wasn't seen as clear as it is now. 
But God has always been opening up this mystery. He has always been unveiling this plan to us. And now in Christ, we have seen the fulfillment of this plan. We have seen the curtains peeled back on God's plan. And it is that in Jesus Christ, you would have a king who dies for his people, a king who is raised from the dead for his people, a king who is ruling and reigning at God's right hand for his people, and everyone from any tribe, every tongue, every nation, all peoples who believe in him, they would serve him as their king forever. That is the mystery that has been unfolded, and we see it. And Paul says, as you are praying, make sure to pray that I have an opportunity to preach this message, to announce that this king has come to announce that this king is ruling and reigning. And this is what we see uh, evangelism to be. Evangelism, very simply, is the announcement of Jesus' kingdom. The announcement, the same announcement that Jesus made when he came to planet Earth and he was casting out demons, he was healing the sick, he was controlling nature, he was teaching, and he would declare, in my flesh and blood, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand, and he would show uh, windows of what, what it would look like when sin and death are defeated, and we are healed of sickness and disease. We are raised from the dead. We are restored to him perfectly. Jesus would say, in my flesh, that kingdom is here. And through the cross and resurrection, he makes that kingdom available to us. And so evangelism, very simply, is this. It is us declaring that in Jesus, God's kingdom is at hand. Acts 1.8, we are given the power of the kingdom. The spirit lives within us to witness, tell the truth, the kingdom is at hand. And that's what all of your evangelistic activities boils down to, is that you are an ambassador of Christ, declaring to the world, the kingdom is at hand in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not some abstract, give God a chance. Do you love Jesus and want to go to heaven? What, what person's going to say no to that? You are announcing with authority based on the word of God and the gospel and by the power of the spirit, the kingdom that will rule forever is at hand in Jesus Christ. You are saying to your lost friends and relatives, as you declare to them and plead with them to believe the gospel, you are saying, be reconciled. The king is here. Bow down before him. Worship him. Follow him. He deserves your life. That is what we're doing in evangelism. Believe in him. He has saved you from your sins on the cross. He is offering you his righteousness so that you can be loved as a son and daughter forever. Be reconciled to him. The kingdom is at hand in the gospel. That is what we are declaring through evangelism. And Paul says, pray that I would have an opportunity to announce this. And notice where it's gotten Paul on account of which I am in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he said the kingdom is at hand in Jesus and not Caesar. No other king. And that's what we do in our evangelism. Evangelism is political. You are pushing back every other rule and reign in the world and you are saying there is only one rule and reign forever. And his name is Jesus. 
and you must bow down to him. And at times, the kingdom of this world lash back. They hate it. The demons shriek and howl because the kingdoms of this world are being toppled through our message of evangelism. And at times, we must suffer for that. Notice Paul is in prison for preaching this. And so when we read this text, so often we think, pray for opportunities for evangelism. And we think, you know, tomorrow morning I'm going to go out and I'm going to take my trash can to the curb. And that neighbor I've been praying for, he's going to bring his trash can out to the curb. And he's going to say, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, what must I do to be saved? And you're going to say, come on, brother, let's sit down for coffee. And I'm going to, that's not the way that's going to work. No, the encounter itself is an opportunity for you to declare Jesus is at hand. Paul is in prison. He's in prison. The easy thing for Paul to do, what would be most natural for Paul to do, is say, there are no opportunities here. And yet we see that Paul, toward the end of his life, is used mostly in jail cells preaching the gospel. To anyone who would listen. And so what Paul is actually saying here, when he says that I may make it clear, verse 4, which I ought to speak, what he is saying is, in prison, help me pray that I would make it clear because I ought to speak in prison. He's not saying pray that the prison door would be open, which by the way, we read in the book of Acts and we see God can do that. No, he's praying, even behind the prison door, would I be faithful, would I be bold, verse 4, because that is what I am supposed to do. Help me just make it clear, because I know I am supposed to be bold and courageous and direct with the gospel, even in prison. You know, reality is, when I've prayed for opportunities for evangelism, they've never been easy opportunity. God usually puts me in situations where it's like, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. And then I have someone at the checkout counter at Meyer who is, they're an emotional wreck. And, and I'm standing there and they turn to me and say, you know, my marriage is falling apart. And I want to say, okay, I'll pray for you but I really got to get back home. My wife and my kids are waiting on me, and there it is. And it's not easy. You, you got you to step up to the plate and actually do what you've asked God to do. But, but I also rarely see all of a sudden these new and outrageous opportunities for evangelism when I pray and ask God to give me opportunities. What normally happens when I am praying that I would have opportunities for evangelism is I just begin to see all of the opportunities for evangelism that have always been there right before my eyes. And my will is in tune with God's will to share the gospel. And so that's what's going to happen. It's a dangerous prayer because you're going to see the opportunities in front of you. And then the question is, are you going to announce Jesus is here? Jesus is at hand and he will forgive your sins and he was raised from the dead and if you follow after him, maybe your marriage will not be better, but you will have a Lord and Savior and you will have eternal life. Are you willing to step in those situations that are at 
Lowe's and Walmart and in the break room and maybe the waiting room? Are you willing to step into those situations? You begin to pray for them and you may even be in prison saying the opportunities are here. And that's what Paul says, pray that I would be clear, that I would be faithful. Paul wants to be faithful in prison instead of free. Think about that. Instead of being free, Paul says, I want to be faithful. And there's so many other insteads in our life that we should pray for. God, help me to be faithful instead of fill in the blank. I have an opportunity to share the gospel here. I have an opportunity to minister to my neighbors, to minister to my friends, minister to my coworkers. But there's a lot at stake. It's going to be awkward. I don't know if they're going to like me. I don't know what my friendship's going to look like after this. God, help me to be faithful instead of liked. Help me to be faithful instead of comfortable. Help me to be faithful instead of known. Help me to be faithful. That is Paul's prayer. Pray that for me while I am in prison, that I would preach the gospel bold, that I would be faithful. And notice he turns to the church here and he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. It is as though in this moment, Paul is thinking about evangelism and then he turns back to the church and says, you too, you too, You be faithful, and he uses the word walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom. Now, the book of Colossians is about wisdom. There were believers in Colossae who were buying into a false teaching that you get true wisdom from angels. And you begin to say these prayers, and you kind of walk up this ladder to certain angels, and they give you knowledge. Paul writes this letter and says, no, Knowledge is found in Jesus. And you're not going to know wisdom in your life until you wrap everything up in Jesus and you live under his authority until you live wise before him, before him trembling. He is king. He is Lord. He's defeated sin and death and he is ruling forever. He is supreme. That is wisdom. And Paul says, I want you to live that way. But notice he says, toward outsiders, toward the watching world, the lost world that's, that's around you. And notice how he describes then. This is the, the end of verse 5. Notice how he describes this. Making the best use of your time. In Ephesians, he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so you would ask, what is the best use of my time as a Christian? What is walking in wisdom before those who live around you? Those who look into your life, they should see the supremacy of Christ by the way that you live. And he says, as I'm, I'm in prison and I, I'm, I want to preach the gospel here, you're free and you're out in the world. And you have opportunity before outsiders to, to declare that Jesus is king by the way that you live. And so make the best use of your time. The best use of our time, the most strategic use of our time is to declare the supremacy of Christ by the way that we live. In your 29,000 days, the average person lives. How many of those days will be redeemed for the supremacy of Christ? 700,000 hours. At best, that's what most of us will get. How many of those hours will be used for the supremacy of Christ? 
the watching world looking in on your life and saying, Jesus is supreme. I see it in the way that they live. I see it in the way they talk. I see it in the way they parent. I see it in the way, I see it in their marriage. I see it in the way that they, what they live for with their money and their resources and their time. I see the supremacy of Christ in their life. And what else are, what else is the outside world gonna see? They're gonna see the way that we treat one another. Notice verse six. He says, as you are living under the supremacy of Christ, let your speech always be gracious. You, with your words, may you be offering unmerited favors, serving others with kindness. And he adds this phrase, seasoned with salt. Now, salt preserves things. And so here, I think Paul is saying, your words must be, must be sprinkled with redemption, Salt makes things whole. It preserves things. Your, 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 your speech should be that which brings about wholeness and redemption in the life of others. Why? It is always gracious. And the point to be made here is if our heart is full of the grace of God in the gospel and you understand that apart from Jesus dying for you and living for you, you would spend eternity in hell. And if that is implanted in your heart, it's gonna come out of your mouth in the way that you talk to others. If you really believe the gospel, your words are gonna be kind. They're gonna be gracious. They're gonna be like redemption in the life of others. You're gonna be thinking, how can I speak words of grace into every situation instead of, stepping into a moment and saying, I want to prove my point. Everybody be quiet and listen to me. Here's my opinion. Here's my agenda. This is what I want for you. You step in and you're thinking, how can I be kind and gracious with the gospel? And Paul says, that is what the church is to look like. And I, I, I want to be honest. I've never been a part of another church like this one where this is displayed constantly where you are speaking kindness and goodness and redemption into the life of one another and you are looking for the ways to, to see the gospel bring restoration into the life of others. But Paul says we have to be on mission for that. As we are praying to God, as we are praying for opportunities for evangelism, we're also looking for ways in the church knowing the outside world is looking in and we are saying, how can I be kind and gracious to you? Do you, you're a mom and you feel, you feel guilty. I'm, not, I'm not, not the kind of mom I should be. Oh, you need words about the cross today. You need to know that God has forgiven you of your sins in Christ and there is no guilt that you should bring upon yourself because your greatest guilt has been paid for. Maybe you're, you're insecure about your job and your calling in life and what titles you have and you don't have. Oh, you need to know that in Christ you have been covered in the righteousness of, of Christ. You are covered in the righteousness of God and you need security in the gospel, and you need to know that God loves you no matter what. And I need to speak that into your life. I need to remind you of those things. I need to season your life with salt, the salt of the gospel, by the way that I talk to you. Oh, there, there's a doctor's appointment coming up. Oh, you received horrible news about a sickness. Oh, you need the hope of a resurrection, brother. Let me remind you, sister, that Jesus got up and walked out of a first century coffin, and your coffin will explode one day when he returns. Let me remind you of that. That is how we just speak into one another's life. That is how we are to season our speech with salt and redemption. 
So, as we get to the end here, what does this have to do with VBS? Well, when sin came into the world, God cursed the world with, with death because of sin. His good rule of life, according to his word, it, it, it was separated. It was removed in some ways from the world so that we live in our sin and we deserve death. But there was a promise in the garden. It was actually a promise to the snake that one day through a woman, a child would be born that would crush his head. There would be a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That's why Eve was named the mother of all living because God was continuing to bring life into the world, cursed with death, and one day there would be a child born who would ultimately bring eternal life into the world. And ever since that moment, every time a child is born, the demons and Satan shriek. In every labor and delivery room, every family court scene, when children are brought into the world, when they are given life and family, the demons shriek. Why? It reminds them of the child born of woman who crushed the serpent's head. And Satan tried to stop that as long as he could, and he failed, and now his doom is sure, and he hates it. And so during VBS, what do we do? Well, we side with the seed born of woman whose name is Jesus. And we say to children, you are a blessing, not a curse. Satan says you're a curse. Satan hates you. Sometimes we say that from up here. We say Satan hates children, and you're like, whoa. No, he hates children. It's okay to say that. He's, he doesn't like you saying it because he doesn't want you to believe it. He hates children. And during VBS, we say, hey, we're on the side of Jesus, and we're waging war against the serpent. And sure, Children are crazy. They are ruthless and they are hard to work with and they are dirty, stinking, rotten sinners. Period. Let's just acknowledge that. But God forbid we ever act like they're a nuisance or a burden. That's what Satan wants from us. And we even take this a step further. We don't just say you're a blessing. We're going to teach you how to follow the dragon slayer named Jesus. We're going to teach you what it means to follow him as king and Lord. And guess what? When you do that, you're in a war. Satan hates that. And you're helpless. And you're weak. But what is the first thing you must do? Pray. You must pray. And so during VBS, let me encourage you to pray. Pride is going to sneak into this building in every little crack. And there's plenty of them. Rain comes through them all the time. It's going to creep in this building. It's going to creep into your little heart. And you're going to get tired. And the popsicle sticks aren't going to be on the plate just the right way. And you're going to get mad at somebody over that. Pray. And what do you pray with? Thanksgiving. Oh, God, thank you that I get to take popsicle sticks and plates and tell kids about Jesus. I don't deserve to be doing this. Pray with thanksgiving this week and pray for the souls of kids. I want to plead with you this week that we would pray by name for kids to believe the gospel. Registration team, you're going to see hundreds of names. You're going to go through those names. 
Pray. Every now and then, just stop and pray for that kid and their family. As you're walking around this room and you see the kids, stop and pray for that kid. You see the kid who's acting crazy and tearing things up, stop and pray for him. Pray for him and his leaders and his parents. Pray. Pray that he would believe the gospel. Let me ask you a question. If you're here today and you believe the gospel before you were 10, raise your hand. Keep them up. Keep them up. <laughs> if you believe the gospel before you were 11, raise your hand. No, everybody, keep your hands up. That's how this is going to work. I'm not good at these things. If you believe the gospel before you were 12, raise your hand. If you believe the gospel before you were 13, raise your hand. If you believe the gospel before you were 15, raise your hand. Look around the room. This is it. This is when we want people to believe the gospel. It's okay if that wasn't you. We used to have a wonderful story. My point in that is this is the war and this is the battle. We live in a culture where children are, their minds and their hearts and their souls and even their bodies are being destroyed because the warfare of the kingdom and the gospel always culminates on kids. That's why we look around our world and we see, even through social media, the minds of kids is being destroyed. We see through the transgender movement, the body of children is being destroyed. We see through the destruction of family, the security and the life and the hope of children, it's being destroyed. And through the heinous, wicked act of abortion, the lives of children are being taken. You see that. And we have an opportunity to step in with plastic swords and cardboard shields, but with prayer and the gospel. So make sure you're praying. Make sure you're announcing the kingdom this week. Let's not let the gospel be the elephant in the room. You're going to build relationships with people and they're going to hear crazy skits about Jesus. They need to know you specifically believe in Jesus. You're, they're entrusting you with their children this week. Look them in the eye and say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Where do you go to church? If you ever follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's what we're about here. Let's preach the gospel. Let's announce the kingdom. Let's look and pray for those opportunities and let's give grace to one another. One of the things VBS does is we invite the community around us here to see us serve in the most stressful way possible. The most stressful way possible. I had to leave yesterday. I just had to walk out. I, this whole thing stresses me out because it's just crazy chaos and that's not how I live my life. I want everything in order. And we invite kids, we say, let's make this place as crazy and chaotic as possible for Jesus. And there's lots of opportunities for us to not be kind and gracious with one another. But we invite the community here and we say, watch us love one another. Watch us love one another in this crazy, chaotic place. That's the beauty of this church. It's always crazy and chaotic here. And what we love one another. And so be gracious and kind with one another this week, and specifically in the way that you talk. When you're tired and you're exhausted and you get frustrated with someone, pray for them and run to them and thank them for all they have done this week. And remember, you get to speak the mystery of the kingdom. With great gratitude, you should do that.